Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Kerry Lee Sinclair is an investor, operator, entrepreneur and global citizen exclusively focused on driving positive outcomes for those dedicated to building the new world or transforming the broken. She has over 20 years working across the high growth ecosystem from co-founding her own startup, which sold to Microsoft in 2007, through to working with some of Australia's leading technology businesses, including Intellimatics and Aconex. For over five years, Kerry Lee led technical investment and venture capital deployment in one of Australia's leading family offices and sits on the boards of several high-growth companies, including AgriDigital, Conserving Beauty and Speed3D. An alumni of the transformational SBA Australia program, Kerry Lee has been the chair of the Female Focused Entrepreneurs Network since 2018, having been involved since the very earliest days of the program in Australia. She's engaged with hundreds of female entrepreneurs across the country, helping them with investment and strategic acquisition. She's an advisory board member of Invest Victoria and is a member of the investment committee for the Alice Anderson Fund, the Victorian government's pioneering angel sidecar fund, which co-invests with private sector investors in outstanding women-led startups. Kerry Lee, it's fantastic to see you. This is our second crack at recording this conversation because for two people who are interested in technology, we had an epic fail last time and didn't manage to record our excellent conversation. So thank you for making the time again. Thanks. I feel like I'm well-practiced. So you've got a really interesting background. Obviously, the accent suggests that Australia wasn't where you originated from. Where did you grow up and what were you like when you were growing up? Uh, So I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, which is near the Canadian Rockies, very cold place. So Australians cannot complain about the weather. And I grew up effectively in in quite a regional area. Edmonton is quite a small town, even though it's the capital of Alberta. And then we moved to Vancouver Island when I was 12. So interesting in reflecting on that, both areas were relatively remote. Family was very important. And then I guess living in in an area where you have to be quite capable you don't walk outside and not freeze to death, right? So as a a young child, you have to learn to take care of your stuff and your belongings because your hands are cold if you drop your mittens. You know, not like here where you're going to have whatever mittens. Family was very important because that's your support structure. Socially, a lot of living in those harsh environments and living in remote areas, you learn to have to rely on what I call the tribe, appreciating that that word does trigger some people, but you learn to rely on others because they are your safety, but you also have to be very resourceful and 
trusting and helpful of others. And I think it's kind of interesting because I don't, you don't ever realize these upbringings and how they turn you into the adult until you kind of look back on them now and go, well, I'm very resourceful. And I see that in my son. We have a country property with a hundred acres up in Massanon Ranges. And the way even he spends his weekends is very different than the average child in the inner city. And he knows our neighbors and, and I'm wanting him to see that as part of building that resilience in him as well. The other thing that seems to me, having got to know you, you know, since you migrated to Australia, is that you also are not afraid to do things a bit differently to others. And as you say, you're resourceful. But did that come from your upbringing? Is that just innate, that that ability to sort of look at what other people are doing and actively decide to do something a bit different? It's a good question. I think, you know, the family DNA is engineering. So my mom was, when she was pregnant with me, was working in computer engineering and was working in big mainframes, changing tapes. And my dad was a mechanical engineer working in heating and cooling, obviously important job in Canada, especially the heating bit. And so my cousins are all, uh, work a lot in the oil fields, uh, environmental engineering in my family, in the Sinclair kind of family. So an engineer loves to solve problems by tinkering and doing things. And I think when I found the internet, I sort of realized it was going to change the world and the physicality of the engineering would change and it would be a virtual engineering. But I often laugh because I I see raising money as financial engineering, right? So I think that there is the nature nurture, you know, I think I was raised an engineer in an environment that was very harsh. And, you know, anyone who's come from a farming or a regional environment, if a part breaks, you don't have... You don't sit in your house and order it by Uber, right? You either have to make a part that doesn't exist, a temporary solution, or you have to find someone to help you drive you somewhere if the car's broken down. Joke I always say is if you take your gloves off and it doesn't work, your hands are frozen. So you put the gloves back on quickly. You don't wait to, your hands are frozen to go, that didn't work, right? So I think that those kind of characteristics kind of have allowed me to be that way the other part of my family so my dad's side's the engineering my mom's side is very creative they're artists they do a lot of and so I think the nature nurture bit I think is is sort of all of that combined has really helped me and I know when I was working at McKinsey and Company early in my career that was one of the feedback that I got was I had the the western logic understanding of physics and chemistry and science and the way the world works but I always put like a 45 degree spin on what we could do with it, which most engineers struggle with because they've learned a process of going from one to get you to two, to get you to three, to get you to four, and then there's decision trees. I'd kind of go, I'm at four and now I'm going to go that way, which was refreshing, but is also challenging to a lot of people who, especially if you spend a lot of time in school and universities and you're a doctorate and you have all of this experience and someone comes along and said, we don't have to do it that way. So I learned very quickly as a young woman that there was aspects of it that were I guess, appreciated and bits of it that were very challenging and you had to learn how to balance that. And so is that part of the reason you started your own business? So, I mean, it seems like you founded a business relatively early in your career. Was that the first thing you did after you left university or or how did the sequence work? No, it's it's really interesting because I think it plays into how you and I got to meet through women entrepreneurs. 
where I actually had a corporate job as my first job. And so I started at McKinsey and Company and the internet was coming at the time. This was in the mid nineties. And with the internet, a lot of McKinsey's clients were saying, how's this going to impact our traditional businesses? And so we were doing a lot of growth project work around the opportunity. And through that, there was a couple of gentlemen, Evan Thornley and Martin Hosking, who started Look Smart. And so I joined Look Smart with them in the late nineties. So I think it was 97 and was part of that. So I basically started as, I think, not employee number 11, but I was in the executive, I was the head of operations for the company. I think it was two weeks after I started, uh, Reader's Digest, who was the main investor in LookSmart, pulled out. And all that creativity we talked about came in, you know, and figuring out how we were going to keep the business survive. And we were basically here in Australia. And so part of that was to move to the U.S. and raise capital. So that was sort of my role. The company listed before the big dot com. And at that point, I was pretty much living in San Francisco and got married in 1999. And they kind of flew me back for my wedding. My husband uh, has an Australian based business. And so kind of realized at that point that if I was going to be in Australia and living the life I wanted, which was working in global companies, but from Australia, I'd probably have to start my own, which I think is where a lot of women founders come from. The world doesn't suit corporate or working for someone else doesn't always suit what they want. And so they create themselves. But I think it's also important because even though I was quite young, the way we were able to raise money was from that corporate look smart network, if it made sense. If I tried to do it straight out of uni, I wouldn't have had the network of people that I'd worked for. I wouldn't have had the experiences that made me investable. And so I think, you know, there is a little bit of that privilege that serves when we look in the data at how women entrepreneurs are funded. If they have that type of background law, they've worked in major corporates, they've been those kind of experiences, they are often able to get seed and and early stage funding because their existing networks are able to sort of get them going. I didn't realize that at the time, but I think also I had two male co-founders, so we were a diverse team. And I was one of two women raising money in Australia at that time. The venture capital pool at the time was about, I mean, in 2012, when we started SBE Australia, which we'll talk about in a minute, it was, I think, 19 million and 12 was committed was the size of the venture capital industry in the country. So I'm sure it was probably 5 million at the time and we got 1.25. So I feel pretty happy that we got like, you know, 20% of the venture capital allocation in the country at the time. But again, there was a lot of McKinsey people in that round, which was effectively a syndicate. Yeah, well, and others might not remember LookSmart, but I was actually a LookSmart investor. And it was quite an amazing company to the extent it was sort of a forerunner of Google. It was sort of internet search didn't end up being as successful as Google. But I think in terms of that sort of network effect, was that something that you consciously built or or did you just sort of find yourself in a situation where because of some of the other choices you were making, that network emerged? I think when you're young, depending on your outlook, you feel like you're fighting the world, if that makes sense, and you're just taking one step at the time. You don't realize there's a whole bunch of people pushing you from behind because they want you to be successful. And I think probably even now, I was thinking within last year, someone's come out of the woodwork that I realized was actually really influential all those years ago, and they've never said anything until now. It's one of the things I love about young founders is I think we always joke, they're too dumb to know all of the things that they're doing wrong. But they also underestimate all the people that are behind them that are helping them that don't want anything but just the help. 
And it was actually funny. When I started my own business, I worked with in the same industry. We we're in the music industry at the time. Another woman had started, was working. She didn't start the company. She was the CEO of it. She was doing her MBA at Melbourne Business School. And she asked if she could do her thesis or MBA project or whatever it's called on me as an immigrant coming into the country and building a network. And she basically was the one that showed me my network on a page, which was exactly as I've outlined it. I was in my 30s by that time and I had no idea that that's why it ended up. And now when I look back on it, almost every job I had since then, a lot of the opportunities that I've had have come from that same network. It's six degrees of separation. There's nodes there that I'm now beyond that first node and I'm now six nodes down, but it all started by an introduction from that first node. It's really difficult, I think, because it's the whole, you have to kiss a lot of frogs to, <laughs> to find the prince. I think if you become inward, you don't meet enough people, but if you spend too many times, you just build a network that's deep, but not broad, if that makes sense. So you have to kind of get out of your network and meet somebody who then meets you to someone else that's out of your network so that you're like in a portfolio approach, you're diverse and you're actually, a, a your network is across different disciplines. I think what a lot of people do, and I particularly see this in startup land, is it's, I always kind of call it like community theater, right? Everyone knows everyone inside a community theater and your jobs are all kind of a bit different and you like each other, but you don't necessarily know anybody that in Hollywood. And the whole story of waiting tables to meet someone in Hollywood or go to Hollywood to meet someone is actually probably better than sitting in community theater thinking someday you're going to get to Hollywood because there are actually repeat bias patterns where that's worked for someone else. You know, the person in the community theater that's telling you they went to Hollywood once and met someone and they can introduce you is not really going to help your career because you need more connections than that one. And it takes time. And just the migrant experience. So sometimes I reflect on female leaders in Australia across all domains, especially in, in business. It seems many of them have an accent. Do you think there is a correlation between that migrant experience of sort of not knowing anyone and having to pedal really hard compared to people who are sort of deeply enmeshed in their own environment and, as you say, find it hard to to really branch out of what they already know. How relevant has that migrant experience been for you or for founders that you've seen really excel? I think there's some different stages. I mean, I think when you come to what age were you when you came to the country, I think has a big difference. It's one of the interesting things that I think Australia needs to think about is, you know, when we bring in someone to be the CEO and it's say it's a male into this country, we don't really think about the wife, the family and their success, them being happy here is just as important as he is. And that's, I think, the reverse that happened to me. You know, I, I had a great network in Canada. I went to school in Canada. I went to university in Canada. I'd worked in Canada. Then I come here and so, and I get a job. And so my friends all become people I work with because I have, you know, my husband's friends, but they're not my friends. And now they are, but, you know, that takes a period of time. And so you just don't insert yourself into a society Whereas when you've gone to school and university, you have tenure, I guess, you know, you have time with these people and you've been in relatively diverse groups of people because you've moved schools or whatever. When you come into a job, unless you job hop, you're really stuck with the friends that you got from your first job and then, you know, your second job. So I think then when you think, well, I don't have these opportunities, you are more willing to take the jump to start something yourself. Whereas I think you would be more hesitant to do it if you had 
everybody around you because you would go talk to someone and they tell you not to, <laughs> or they'd say, this is really hard. Whereas I just went to my boyfriend at the time and said, I think I want to do this. And he goes, sure, do it. We'll have to eat beans for a while because we'll be living on one salary. But if that's what you want to do, let's do it. Right. And I also think that was quite important. I think if you're on your own and you're a single income, it's very hard to start your own business on a dual income, two can live as one. And I think if, you know, I'm very supportive of husband and wife founders. I have some in my portfolio for that reason, because they often they're able to start a business where they can look after and do things that you couldn't do as co-founders. You can't, unless you're house sharing, just because the cost of the rent is the same, whether there's one person or two there and and things like that. So it feels from afar that your founder journey was sort of the, the dream journey you know you started a business at the right time built it up and then along came microsoft bought it or, or a subsidiary of microsoft can you just strip that myth away and and share a little bit about you know the, the reality of it i think there's two aspects of it i think the founder journey is harrowing and i think that too many people glamorize it you know there's a great book by Ben Horowitz called The Hard Things About the Hard Things. Um, And that's just about being a CEO, but being a founder is exactly the same. You know everything and you know nothing. You know, you have, if you're a control freak, your vision is never perfect. It's never ready. Your product isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be. You have to tell people what you want the product to look like, but it never looks like what you want it to look like. Then everything's moving at the same time. And then I think with the co-founder journey, you kind of start around something that's artificial and then you work together to make something real. And in that you have to learn about each other as well. Whereas similar to a romantic relationship, there's a lot of work in it. And I had two men. So, and they weren't, they weren't related. (laughs) They were different men. So you had to have different relationships, different with them. You had to work together to get there successfully. And then you had to try to provide a united front to go raise money and hire people And, you know, we had a very technical engineering person, we had a musician, and then we had me, it was kind of running the company. And so just roles like who's the CEO, who is the investable one, who is the one that's going to run the boring stuff. And I think the challenges with women sometimes, and, you know, Sheryl Sandberg talks about the office housekeeping is a lot of the stuff that no one wants to do falls on the woman, right? And so... There's a lot of stuff no one wants to do in running businesses. And and I do think that's why women run better businesses is because you have to do the stuff that no one wants to do. And so I think that is hard. And then I think raising money. I often have spoken about being flown to Perth to do a reverse listing. So at that time, the mining companies, their values were down. Tech was the thing to be. Surprise, surprise. That hasn't happened before. And they wanted us to do a backdoor listing and they would become a tech company. And the clear outcome standing back now is we never would have been bought by Microsoft if we were a reverse listed mining company on the Australian Stock Exchange, a baby miner, right? And yet we would have raised capital and we would have lived our lifestyles much better. Instead, we went nine months with no pay and not reduced pay, not $150,000 a year on a startup salary, zero pay. And that was really hard because we felt like we were doing everything we should be doing, but we were doing it wrong because we weren't raising money. And I think when I speak to any founder today, they feel the same way. And so I can kind of go, well, I'll tell you what, 20, 25 years on, it's a lot more capital. It doesn't get any easier because I think it's part of the journey. Don't choose it. 
because you think you're different, it's just going to be as hard and it's just going to be your hard. It's not going to be my hard. But that's that's the beauty of it is then when you get it right, you feel true competence because you actually did something that no one else did and you know you own it I think the other challenge we had which is really relevant to today is we basically started our U.S. raise in the middle of the dot-com crash and September 11 we'd raise money but we were actively selling in the U.S. when September 11 happened and so we had to pivot our business at that point to not being a consumer business. We weren't going to be a consumer business, but we pivoted to being more a technology that content owners would be attracted to. And that gave us revenue to survive, but we kind of became the cockroach. So we weren't able to raise money. We just lived. The magical swoop in by Microsoft was just lucky that that, because we were quite early in the music scene, was that Apple had its genius product. We've been working with them on that they went a different way. Microsoft was like, had lots of money and was like, we've got to get into this music space. And it was a lot of hard work. And I quite often also talk about this. No one is looking for your business, right? To buy. There has to be an economic buyer inside that business that sees that they're going to get revenue and make money from what you do. And to do that, you have to be in deep conversations with them. They have to understand how you're going to drive the money. And I mean, there was two years of conversations with Microsoft before they bought us, and there was two years of an earnout before we could announce. So I would say from 2003 to 2007, there was a deep relationship and work on that in that that no one saw until the press release comes out and everyone goes, yay, look what happened, you know? So I think, again, that the swan analogy or the duck analogy where it looks all smooth on the water, but the legs are going furiously, that needs to be happening with any of these relationships. They just don't happen overnight. No, and I think I've heard you say before, it's not just understanding who the sort of entity might be that, that can generate more revenue because they've acquired your business, but it's also the actual individual inside that business who's going to be a sort of sponsor and advocate for the transaction. You need someone who's personally invested in it and it makes their personal life better. Yeah, and I think also you have to be careful the corporate wheel of death where that person's made redundant and you got to start all over again, right? So there's a type of sales mythology that's used in enterprise. It's called, I think corporate executive board used to do it. I think they've been bought now, but they used to talk about the seven different types of people within an enterprise. And there's the teacher and then there's the young gun. And then there's, you know, and the one that is going to make or break their career on getting your business bought is the one you want. But the problem is they're making or breaking their career. So they're likely to jump ship and go get a better job and get paid more money. And that leaves you with a guy that wants to talk to you every day for coffee, but it's not going to get the deal across. I'm a big strategy person. I drive all my portfolio companies crazy because I kind of keep standing back and going, but what are we trying to do here? I think a lot of people take meetings or they go, oh my goodness, I have a meeting with so-and-so at Microsoft. It's like, that's never going to be a transaction. That's never going to be a deal because there's another 17 people that that process to get into there and then get your technology being used is the most important thing. And that person's not even in the same department. Again, it's naivety, but it's also just not smart. Back to my networking kind of thing. If you know who you want to meet, then you've got to go and figure out how to meet them. Just don't let the world decide who it wants you to meet. The serendipity is great for the long term, but the short term is the path to 
between A and B is the quickest. So get to the quickest path as possible. When people come to me that with my network, they go, oh, can you introduce me to someone at Microsoft? And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Like, why would I do that? You can probably go to their headquarters here in Melbourne or Sydney or wherever they are and stand downstairs and wait for someone to come and order coffee and ask them if they work at Microsoft. There you go. You've just met someone from Microsoft. Like, why are you asking me? If you want a name, I can then tell you how I can get to that name, right? Because Australia is a small market, I think we tend to think that we'll just run into the person because often that person is not in this market. You said before you think women run better businesses because they do the things that other people don't want to do. If that's the case, why don't we see more women-founded businesses get disproportionately well-funded because I think all of the statistics demonstrate that that's not the case. I think there's a couple of nuances here. And I notice it the way I communicate. Whenever we do our um, SBE programs and I sit back, I go, actually, I do what I'm telling other people not to do, which is we're not very clear what the ask is and what the, the needs are going to be and why business is going to be successful because we know so much of what's wrong with the business. And so we go, oh, that guy's going to resign in three days if I don't solve this problem. But I'm going to stand in front of this person and tell them I need $10 million. And I don't think women are as good at that context switching. There's a you can YouTube it, a guy called George Carlin, and he's done back in the 80s, I think. And he talks about the difference between men and women's brains. And his analogy is men have a box for everything they go into. They've got the car box, the garage box, the work box, whereas women, all our boxes are connected together. And I think when men go to raise money, it's very clear that they're going to go raise money. That's what they need to do. They kind of don't look at the business box because it doesn't matter. The outcome is to raise money. Whereas women kind of bring all the boxes together and go, you see this? I want you to invest in it. And that just looks like crazy. It is very hard to disconnect. And this is why we're so good is it's very hard to disconnect ourselves with what we are actually trying to do from what we're actually trying to do it for. And I think that extends to children. It extends to our families. When you drop your child off at daycare and they're screaming and you close the door and walk away, you usually have tears in your eyes. My husband will say, I have absolutely no problem. I'm like, thank goodness <laughs> I don't have to deal with this. And he's straight into work, right? Whereas I'm like in tears because it's just really hard to switch me into just being purposely about that because it's all connected. Then secondly, on the other side, the accepted way to raise investment is based on a standardized model that has come out, say, 15 years ago from Y Combinator, which is very much telling a story in a linear fashion that is all about raising money. And I think a lot of the businesses that we start as women, they don't necessarily follow that journey. And so we then take men who are investing money down a journey that they're uncomfortable with because they have no idea where it ends up. And it doesn't look like it ends up as a billion dollar company. And so even if we get funding, we often get it at a, I think at a lower valuation or it takes us longer because they just want us to get them to the billion dollar aha moment. And we're uncomfortable with aha moment because we're not hundred percent sure how we're going to get there. And we know about all the problems behind us or in the business. You mentioned um, SBE and billion-dollar business, and those two concepts go together because SBE has, you know, a track record of of being involved in being a launchpad for some very successful businesses led by women. Can you tell us a bit about how you got involved with SBE and why you think the work that it does is important? 
it's really interesting because it's part of the journey as well. So I did the very first program in the US in 2000. And so just to set a bit of a scene of what it was like in the US in 2000, all of the venture capital was pretty much deployed out of Sand Hill Road, which is a very beautiful area, but basically think American golf courses and big gates. And so his idea was, is that you would need to get inside the gate and it was very difficult for women to just sort of show up and get inside the gate, start talking to people about money. And so Kay and Amy, who started Springboard, came up with a concept that they would gather all the women together, put them at Menlo Park at the Oracle Center, I think it was. And we would pitch in front of 150 venture capitalists and they would get access to us and we would get access to them. So I did that program with my business, my startup. And we didn't actually raise capital. I think we were one of only three that didn't, but we got a lot of very important long-term relationships. We got eMusic, we got Panasonic. We were invited into a lot of really interesting areas at the time, which did actually change our business. And then I had nothing to do with really with it until they decided to come to Australia. And at the time they were like, do you think there's women entrepreneurs in Australia? And I went, yeah, of course there are. And they sort of said, well, can you go find some? And I was kind of like, why? Why am I looking for them? Like, I don't understand. And they're like, well, we think that what we did with you can help because, you know, you're one of our exits and you did really well. And that's something that Australia needs. And, and Wendy Simpson, who brought it here, believed very strongly in that. But I think I kind of went, what exactly did you do? Like, it's not like you got me money. And I was quite not skeptical, but I also was just the, you need money here in Australia. Like there is no money. As I said to you before, it was 19 million of which 12 million was committed at the time, the venture, whole venture capital industry in Australia. And they said, but if the companies are here, the money will come. Right. So, you know, so it's a bit of that chicken and egg. And I think that they hadn't done anything with keeping us together. And I think and I hadn't done anything about keeping us together. And as soon as I did a little video, which used to be online, but thankfully they've taken it down. But when I walked into that first room of the women that did our first program in 2013, I just sort of went into another place where I felt how lonely I'd been and how misunderstood I was as a human being. And when I got into that room with those women entrepreneurs, I went, oh my goodness, here is my group. They get me, they're running through the same problems. And I felt I'd been disconnected from it and I brought back to it. And I then really engaged because I said, if I can only do one thing, I can provide her with someone else that she can talk to and know that she's not alone in all of the roles that women have. Entrepreneurship is, there is another one. And there is someone that she can talk to. And then there's eight and then there's 10 and now between three and 400, depending on the numbers of the types of programs that are now doing our programs and they're connected with each other and they talk to each other and they connect with each other and they laugh hysterically at the same stories. Like the stuff that happens to us all is actually worth writing a book because you would not believe it, but it happens to us all separately. And so when you share it, it doesn't seem like you did something wrong. You realize actually this is the cultural problems that we're dealing with. This is the entrepreneurial problem. This is the female problem. They just help you feel, it's like mental health. The social impact of just having people that have your back, it just gives you resolve to keep going and resolve to change. And, and I think that that's why it's so important to me because you know back to your very original questions around network, if a woman can come into this and have that network from gate day dot, she's going to be more successful, even if she's not. And she decides to go work for one of these companies or she decides that entrepreneurship's not her. She hasn't had to be destroyed to find that out. And she's in some place that she can add value for the next person that comes in. It's funny you say that because 
it makes it sound a bit like summer camp, but it's really actually hard. And it's interesting. So we see women who've graduated from an SBE program and you can just in so many ways get a sense of the uplift in quality and capability of both the the woman as a founder but the business as well. And it's interesting those women who have quite established businesses who've gone and done SBE and it's been this amazing catalyst for improvement because it feels like SBEs almost force them to sort of break down or kill the sacred cows you know some of the things that they've fallen into the habit of of doing because it was expedient at the beginning or because that's their personality or whatever it is you know that 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 there's a robustness to the people who come out of the of the program yeah it's really interesting Uh, one of the very first entrepreneurs that I mentored was a woman called Tessa Court from Intelligence Bank and boy, she and I went around the ring a few times because she would come and pitch to me and I would give her feedback on her business and what she would do. And she'd go away, work on it, come back. And this went on for eight weeks. And at times she was pulling her hair out and she goes, but you told me to do this and I did it. And now it's still not right. And I said, that's right. Because, you know, and at the end of the whole process, she said, you know what I realized you have to break a lot of eggs to make an omelet. And I said, exactly. And it's, you know, the way the human brain works. The best entrepreneurs in the world are control freaks, right? They want it to look their way, but the best billionaires and the best business people actually aren't control freaks. They are actually, they take feedback really well. They look for people smarter than them to work on their business. They actively ask questions instead of talk. The screening that we do for our programs, which, you know, has its own challenges because all we are doing is putting a level, I guess, of our own bias on what a good woman entrepreneur looks like. But a lot of it is challenging the woman about her ability to receive feedback. And I would say most people that don't get into the program, it's because their inability to show us that they're willing to take the feedback. They want to do our program so they can say they did it. It's like doing sales training, right? Have you ever had to film yourself and... I can see my hands moving. No one else on the the podcast will be able to see my hands moving and I have to sit on my hands. Like it's terrifying to get it done and to watch yourself and you hate it. This is our programs. No one walks out of our programs going, gee, that was fun. There's tears. There's often like, I feel terrible. I feel like all of I started my business was because these amazing people are telling me that I'm not doing it right. But once you get through that, you run a really good business. So, and we've had people leave on day two. The day one was too traumatic for them. And that's fine. Founder journey is hard. If you can't get through our program, you're probably not going to make it the distance anyway. So you might as well find that out now before you go take some of this money and then have to deal with losing it because I've lost people's money. And that's that's another part of the journey. So Scale and SBE started in Australia about the same time, sort of 10-ish years ago. What was it about that time you think that made the Australian environment ready for organisations that were focused on trying to stimulate women's entrepreneurship? And and what's changed and what stayed the same over that 10 years? Look, I was listening to a really interesting podcast around what's happening in Iran at the moment. And they were saying, you know, every generation in Iran has had their version of what's happening. And for people that don't know, there's effectively pushing back on, uh, there was a woman who wouldn't wear a headscarf and she was put in jail and died of a heart attack at 22. And everyone's saying, well, no, you know, we're young people. We should be able to set our own economic future. We should be able to do it in Iran and not have to leave. And so there's going to be this ongoing fight, I think. And it's that generation's way of saying, no, we are the ones that are going to build Iran. 
we want to build it here. We want to build it our way. And it's happened 20 years ago and it's happened, you know, it's not generational necessarily, but I feel like there is a point that women get frustrated. And I came into it when it was the whole, you have to play golf to get ahead in business, you know, that generation. And I felt like I played golf with all my male colleagues. Like I was like, no, I like golf. Then they inv- they know I like golf. So they invite me to play. And then we have conversations on the golf field. And so I think that next generation that came in past that generation was then like, well, wait, this isn't seeming to happen. There doesn't seem to be women entrepreneurs, like just in the golf course, there doesn't seem to be enough women playing. Where are the women? And are they playing? And then when I think you went and found them and realized there are actually women here and they just don't present in places that you find them. They're not in the golf course, back to use that analogy. And why not? Because they don't want to play golf. Okay. Well, if they don't want to play golf, that's fine. They're still valid. They're still good players. And so I think that they were different people and different forces, but at the right time because of their own frustrations and their own, no, this has to change. The harder thing, I think, reflecting and and thank you for being at our impact event on the 1st of September, where we celebrated the 10 years of what we've done together, I think, and there's a report people can download and, and look at the actual tangible numbers. I think what we have done together shows that everything works that we do. I think, unfortunately, it doesn't show that the financing, the ability for the women particularly women founders on their own to get funded has changed at all. And in fact, it's going backwards. But I think the businesses that do our program scale and, and head over heels, you know, they have much better networks. They are more likely to raise capital. They're more confident. They know more people in their networks. You know, it, they are very successful out of a cohort compared to this, the mean and compared to many male businesses. So I think the social capital side of it has worked really well. So all of our entrepreneurs give back. They help the next generation of entrepreneurs. So there's benevolence that's really important to the success of women, because I think in the past, it has been acceptable for women to kind of belittle women. I think we're in a generation now where we've got to hold each other and be on the same team. But I think the cultural capital, i.e. the infrastructure and the environment that we live in here in Australia and the financial capital, which are the two other, you know, if an event diagram of social, financial and cultural, the cultural and financial are still wanting. The cultural stuff is very difficult for us to do unless we're at a scale of women, of social capital that and given it we're 50% of the population. But entrepreneurship is still relatively small in the scale of, of feminine kind of attributes at a cultural level. And so we're just gonna have to keep punching above our weight and support each other. The cultural capital governments, cult- corporates can change some of that. And then I think the financial piece is really the bit that we can and and amplifying like with scale and some of the things that you're doing with raising more money and how do we get to more women, I think is is how we actually make that next change. And you know, I, I think I said on one of the podcasts that you did with your portfolio group, you know, I always like 10xing a problem, right? How, so if I said to you, how do we fund 500 women in the next 12 months? It's very different than how do I fund one? And I think that's the conversation we need to have. Because if I said there's 500 women that are fundable at the moment and I asked, gave them a million dollars, that's a $500 million fund, which is half a billion dollars, which there are many VC funds. So it's not like it's not possible. Like <laughs> VC funds have been in, in this country been able to raise more than a billion dollars. So how do we change that funding prop for this? If if I know 390 women-led businesses that are fundable, and you probably know a bunch that I don't know about, and there's again just in the law of portfolio theory, there's probably just as many that we don't know about 
there seems to be enough. And I think, you know, building female founders has shown that there's a huge number of interest in women looking for capital. So that I think is, has not changed as much. I think the capital has changed. There's heaps of capital out there, but it hasn't effectively been deployed into women entrepreneurs the way I would have expected over 10 years. Yeah. And I think it's important that it's not pinkwashing, that there's not this sort of tokenism around, we ran a few seminars and we got some ladies along and tick, we've done that. Let's go back to business as usual. And I think from my perspective, I think it's about demonstrating that you make exceptionally good returns, investing in great women founders, and it's sort of making the sales pitch a purely economic one. You know, if you want to make great returns, find the underinvested opportunity. And I think that's one of the things that's great about the longevity of SBE is that, you know, you've got some graduates that have done some amazing things that prove out that concept that women can run really great businesses that return to their investors. Well, and I think, you know, the the funny thing that doesn't come into the data, which again, I've already spoken about is when you do our programs, your co-founders can come and observe and they're often men and their husband and wife teams, and they are very diverse. And we do put a gender lens, but not women for women. We do a, we want a parity. The simple example, just for simple maths, is if you had a portfolio of six companies and you had two diverse founding teams, so that means men and women in the team, and you had two male-only teams, for us to reach parity in this country, you would only need to find two women-led businesses that were founded by women, and you would have parity. That would be 50%, right? So I think when we're launching this Capital Diversity Index, which is going to look at both, it's going to look at both the women amount of diverse founders, which is sitting at about 14.7% in the moment. And we're looking at women-only invested companies, which is about 0.7%. Now, if we can move the diverse ones up to 25% and the founding ones up to, say, five, I mean, it still sounds like terrible numbers, and, and they're not final numbers, but like just as an example, we are suddenly so much closer to parity. And when you sit down with a male VC, they'll say, but we have diverse founders and this is how many we have. And we're like, right, so you only need one more next in your next portfolio. And a couple of these ones that you don't have any of, and you're at parity. And then they go, oh, actually, it's not that hard. It's just they haven't thought about portfolio construction at the highest level. It's the human ego, I think, to say, I like this company. I want to put money in it. As an investor, I know that's my ego. I like the companies that I like. I don't like the companies that someone else likes. So I want to put my money in those companies. I personally have stood back and say, what does my portfolio represent? Because the best money you make as an investor is, is on a portfolio approach, which means it needs to be diverse. It needs to be, in my mind, it needs to be across sectors. It needs to have different stages. Now, I know not every fund is designed like that, but if you just took a gender or diversity as a lens across your portfolio, you should be able to find it's actually not as hard as you think it is. But it's like most problems coming from the engineering creative person, right? Like at the end of the day, it's you can engineer your way out of most problems, right? So just engineer your way out of it. And that's what I think the whole let's not talk about this, but like tokenism or the setting targets in my mind, targets are just a way of engineering the outcome that you want. It doesn't mean you get a worse outcome. It means that you actually are trying to engineer the outcome you want and you're trying to put some sort of structure around it to ensure that you get there so that you don't, as the human brain tends to do, get lost along the squirrel that you saw over in the tree and you actually are serious about getting to where you're trying to go. So yeah. I'm not supportive or not supportive of them. I just understand why they exist. Yeah, I think also it's a great antidote for hubris 
you know, because I think all of us, as you say, as investors, feel like we know better than everyone else. You know, I've seen something in a company and I think that's what's going to make it successful. The reality is no one at early stage has a monopoly on being able to pick fantastically performing companies every single time. And so I think some of that, as you say, portfolio theory and putting some targets around things actually forces you outside your comfort zone and where you feel most confident into actually building some risk management, but but also possibly performance enhancement because you're forced out of where your natural hunting ground is. Yeah, it's a lot of constraints as well. If I only can invest in two companies because of the constraint that I've put over myself, I'm going to be really highly convicted on those two companies. I'm not going to do it well. I got a spare $10 million sitting here. They can each have five, right? There's a really interesting reading around, you know, when you take the candy and you split it between the two children equally, it's actually the worst thing you can do. The best part of brain is I just want to be fair. I'm just going to spread it to everybody, but that's actually not going to get you the best outcome. You'd be better giving 1 million to one of the companies and nine to the other. But because we don't have, we don't put those constraints on ourselves, we kind of go, well, we'll just do with what we can. And then when you do that, you end up with an unknown outcome, really, because you just kind of hustled. You just made it, you know, spaked it till you made it and you got that. But now you don't know the outcome. Whereas if you were very, if you had a constraint and you had to think very, practically and carefully about the choices and the the things that you could play with, you would come out with a better solution. It's just we're too time poor or we're not focused enough. This is what I think is going to happen in the markets at the moment and with the kind of reprofiling of all these and the the way money is going to come through now is people be more thoughtful about how they deploy it. I think the money's still out there, but I think there is a lot more thought around impact diversity, around valuation, obviously, which I think is important because it's that law of constraints, again, coming in. Last question, what are you really optimistic and excited about when you look forward? Oh, I'm a huge believer in the next generation. I remember sitting in a panel years ago, and it was fascinating. It was like a cultural anthropologist who's been studying people for hundreds of years. I think University of Sydney is one of the universities been doing it. This is the longest kind of cohort, and they go and interview I think it's 12-year-old kids every year. And that's how they decide on Gen Y and Gen X. And because when children at 12 start changing, when they start thinking really, really different than the previous 12-year-olds, then that's a new generation coming. Again, back to the cultural problems that we have in this country, it all comes back to the problems that they want to solve and the, the things that they want to do are uniquely theirs. They will set fashion and we won't realize that they'll set fashion, you know, because they are an influence. That's just the group that are have buying power. They're going to come in and buy houses or not buy houses. And when you look back at what we've done is we get older, we go, oh, young kids these days, they're nothing like we want to. And the older that we get, we become more like our parents. And, you know, and so there's actually a bit of a cultural bit that we do that we basically start poo-hooing on, you know, that the young kids today are going to have to deal in worlds that we didn't have to. Well, we dealt with worlds that our parents didn't have to do either. And we were fine. As much as I look one way, I look back at the other way and go, you know, these kids got it. Yes, they spend a lot of time on their devices, but that's for a reason. They'll figure it out. Like there's something, I read a lot of books, you know, so whenever I find myself kind of getting frustrated, I just kind of go back and go, where is there a young kid that started a business or there's somebody that's who's started her first business and is doing really well. 
because that's where I want to hang out. I don't want to hang out with all the old people like me. Because <laughs> all we do well, is complain. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's th- this is coming up to the end of our second hour recording a podcast and I could easily uh, record another two hours of conversation with you because there's so many things I haven't got to yet and so many things that I always feel like I learn from you when, when we get together. So thank you so much for your time and um you know, that stunning event that you had to celebrate 10 years of SBA was such an important reminder of, you know, why the work you do is important, but also that, you know, there's still lots to be done. Yeah, I look forward to um, continuing because I do think that the next 10 years is just as important as the last. So thank you. I find the investors and entrepreneurs I meet through Scale absolutely inspiring and learn so much from every conversation. If you feel the same and would like to get involved, visit us at www.scaleinvestors.com.au and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks to Buffy Gorilla for her amazing production and to the Scale team who make it all possible. Hope to see you again soon.